Welcome to Dent City Podcast, a show that discusses academic articles and books on the topic of cities with the researchers who write them. I'm your host, Becca Mares. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Pascal Josart Marcelli, who is a professor of geography and director of the Interdisciplinary Urban Studies Program at San Diego State University. Pascal's teaching and research focus on urban poverty and social justice. During the past decade, she's conducted research on urban geographies of food with a particular interest in the relationship between place, ethnicity, and food. Pascal relies on mixed methods in her research, combining analyses of mapping of quantitative data with ethnographic work, participatory research, and media explorations. She collaborates with several community-based organizations in San Diego that are working towards creating a more just, healthy, and sustainable food system. We're talking about her book, The $16 Taco, Contested Geographies of Food, Ethnicity, and Gentrification. This book was recently published by the University of Washington Press. So without further ado, welcome, Pascal, to Dent City. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I um, I was so interested reading your book. I mean, the title, $16 Taco, what an intriguing title, really catches your, your eye and your brain. Um, but what prompted you to write this book in the first place? Well, um, I had been doing research on the, the importance of food in immigrant neighborhoods for several years. And I was mostly focusing on uh, food insecurity, access to healthy food, um, and also community-based solutions such as local food systems, ethnic entrepreneurship, urban agriculture uh, that immigrants engaged into. And um, at some point, as I was doing this research, I began noticing that many of these initiatives were getting a lot of attention from outsiders who were looking for maybe exciting food experiences or maybe ways to distinguish themselves as enlightened consumers. And this really hit me on an airplane when I was flying back from a conference where I had just presented some of this research on the role of ethnic businesses um, in improving access to food in San Diego, in immigrant neighborhoods. And in the in-flight magazines in front of me, there was an article on Barrio Logan, which is one of the neighborhoods that I had uh, just described in my presentation as a food desert because at the time it did not have a supermarket. And the, the article was basically encouraging international travelers to go visit it, mostly to check out the amazing food scene. And uh, the, if the article had been on maybe downtown or any of the beach cities of San Diego, I would not have been surprised, but this was really something else. And that's kind of what really prompted me to look more into this issue and to ask question about what is the impact of the growing popularity of ethnic food and then the influx of outsiders in places like Barrio Logan and other neighborhoods that are primarily inhabited by immigrants and people of color. Interesting. Yeah. A, um, it wouldn't seem, you know, just off the face of it that it's such a problem, but you really outline in the book and I appreciate the sort of walking us through it. But, um, you know, tell us about some of the problems with these sort of enlightened consumers and then the purpose of this book? 
Right, well, so, I mean, what's interesting to me as an urban geographer is how food can transform neighborhoods. And uh, this influx of outsiders in places that have often been uh, stigmatized as problematic, uh, that have often been ignored by policymakers and investors, is um, th there's often this assumption that this influx has a positive impact. It often means more jobs, maybe more revenue, uh, more investments, maybe that could also improve food access, and maybe it could even signal a more tolerant society where people um, interact with each other and learn about each other's cultures. And what my book does, uh, The $16 Taco, it, it questions these assumption and it highlights the role of food in paving the way for gentrification and potentially causing the displacement of longtime residents who've actually built this foodscape. And they've often built it out of necessity and resilience. They've not built it for outsiders, uh, but that is what is currently happening in many areas. Um, so they're losing ownership of this foodscape. So it's not built for outsiders to begin with. But what what is that process where it becomes for outsiders, right? What's that process and the underlying work like gentrification or neoliberal capitalism that you go through in the book? Right. So what I do, basically, the whole book is set up to sort of document the transformation of three specific neighborhoods in San Diego that have uh, large numbers of immigrants. And they're being transformed from what I call an ethnic foodscape, which is um, a food environment that is shaped by the history of the neighborhood as an ethnic enclave and by the sort of everyday practices of the residents um, to what I call a cosmopolitan foodscape. And this cosmopolitan foodscape is a much more eclectic food environment that is designed and created by outside investors to attract foodies and affluent consumers who will then spend in these uh, spaces. And so I examined this transformation and I spent the first time, the first third of the book, I would say, to describe what the ethnic foodscape is like and how it functions. And then I describe in the middle third, kind of how it is getting transformed and who is getting involved in that. And then the remaining part is really focusing on what the impacts are. And so this transformation, I use the phrase, uh, the urban food machine. And I also use the term gastro development because I argue that people don't just randomly decide to venture in a new place to try something new, right? They have to be enticed to go there. And that happens partly because of social media, partly because of investors, partly because of the city and some initiatives that they're putting in place to try to maybe revitalize some of these neighborhoods. So there's a number of actors that sort of work a little bit like an urban growth machine, but in this case, I describe it as the urban food machine where food is basically becoming sort of the engine of growth. And what's interesting about food is that it's very um, depoliticized in the sense that everybody loves food, right? If anybody comes to any kind of stakeholder and say, we wanna bring a farmer's market in this community, or we wanna create a community garden, or you know, we wanna open a new restaurant, most people would say, of course, that's, that's wonderful, that's great. And so there's so many people who are on board and so many people who are 
pushing for these uh, development to occur. And we're not always thinking about the potential consequences of that. On the surface, it just sounds wonderful. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I remember growing up in Toronto in Canada and there's just such an amalgamation of different foodscapes and different um, quote unquote ethnic food that you can get. And I always would joke, you know, what is Canadian food? It is every other food. Um, But it's exactly that sort of perspective and this cosmopolitanization uh, that might be problematic if those people aren't even the ones to own set restaurant and this shift from ethnic foodscape to cosmopolitan. Who controls the story that is being told about the food? Who controls the authenticity of the food? And then who controls the the revenues that are generated from selling and marketing and commoditizing this food? And I think that's really the important question. Um, A lot of time, um, the, 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 the stories behind the food are completely erased or curated to make them attractive to outsiders. And so we love ethnic food in some ways, but we don't love immigrants. Mm. And that's sort of the contradiction. Um, And then in the book, you discussed this sort of complexity of and problem with calling ethnic food, ethnic food in the first place. So could you enlighten us and walk us through uh, the rationale for that? Sure. I mean, I call it ethnic food because I cannot think of another term, mm-hmm. but it's definitely problematic, right? If you think about it, every food is ethnic food, right? I mean, everybody has an ethnicity, yeah. but in our mind, when we think of ethnicity or when we think of ethnic food, we think of the food of some sort of racialized other. It's typically the food of brown and black people. Um, for example, even in the United States, French food, Japanese food, Italian food is no longer considered ethnic because it's viewed as maybe higher cuisine or more superior food in some people's mind. And it's more associated with white food in some ways, while ethnic food is often, this, you know, not described, but it's often uh, perceived as cheap food. And that, of course, there's a very racial Uh, undertone to this conversation about ethnic food. Yeah, and I was even um, taken aback by the sort of, you know, why do we have grocery aisles that say ethnic food or international food when almost every single fruit or thing that's coming, you know, from our grocery store is not from the country. (laughs) Like it's not from Canada, it's usually imported. So everything is ethnic food, right? Right, for sure. In fact, there's been a number of people recently who've been calling for, uh, you know, just getting rid of this idea of ethnic aisle, which really is just yet another way of dividing people. Um, And it's often along the line of race and ethnicity. Yeah, almost like a representation of how we think of, you know, different ethnicities, but we're not actively thinking about it, you know, growing grocery shopping. It's, oh, I need, you know, this ingredient. I'm just going to go to this aisle. Right. Instead of, you know, why can't this be in the the normal aisle? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then you also discussed this idea of a food apartheid. And, um, you know, we have an idea of what apartheid is, but, you know, why do you use it in regards to food? Walk us through some of that background literature. 
Sure. So this idea of food apartheid uh, really originally comes from activists uh, who've been very involved in um, fighting against these racially based um, division when it comes to food experiences. And so this notion is sort of um, highlighting the facts that people of color are denied access to food and denied control over their food ways, very much as a result of racially biased political and economic decisions. Uh, that includes uh, planning decisions such as zoning ordinances, racial covenants, uh, land use policies, etc., that have resulted in very segregated and divided foodscapes. Um, and so this notion of food apartheid, in a way, it's moving beyond the idea of food desert that has become very popular. And we can think of food desert as describing a condition where a certain neighborhood doesn't have a grocery store, for example, or a supermarket most of the time, that's what it's focusing on. As food apartheid is more a process and it's also trying to understand why that happens. And when we focus on food apartheid, we start paying more attention to the dynamics, including the political and economic, and of course, racial dynamics that lead some people to not have good access to food. And I think that what is happening with gentrification in um, immigrant neighborhoods where the food is becoming attractive and it's drawing new people and so on is a continuation of food apartheid because it's people who are unable to claim and control their food environment and then it becomes appropriated by yet again you know more powerful actors and and they again are being um, displaced or suffering from um, the um, inability to to control this environment in a setting uh, where there's such deep structural inequality. Right. Yeah. Like who controls that, that food process? And can you give us a few examples of where this plays out? Like you said, um, in terms of zoning or what type of food uh, were considered in the food desert, like a market or something like that? Right. Well, I think one of the most flagrant example of that is perhaps if we go back historically and we think about processes like red zone, uh, redlining. Um, I mean, redlining was basically federal policies that designated certain areas as too risky for investments. And so mortgages would not be guaranteed. And as a result of that, banks decided to, I mean, banks would not make loans in these redlined areas. They basically, there was a map where they outlined in red hazardous areas. And in San Diego, the three neighborhoods that I studied that are, by the way, uh, City Heights, Southeastern San Diego, and Barrio Logan, all three were partly uh, redlined. And as a result of that, uh, there was very limited investment. There was limited home ownership. Uh, it just was not an area where there would be an influx of capital. And so as soon as these areas were redlined, um, the housing start, stock started declining and investment started declining. And then that was later on, there were you know, ordinances that transformed uh, land use from single family to multifamily housing. Uh, there were policy decisions about building freeways. So all three neighborhoods have been completely cut up by freeway constructions. 
that benefits suburban residents. And of course, suburbanization then led to the expansion of large supermarkets and um, huge convenient, huge um, mega stores. And that, of course, hurts local small markets in central city areas. So there's a host of policies and decisions that have um, taken place one after the next that really devalued these neighborhoods and resulted in a, a very devalued foodscape. And so people then had to come up with strategies you know, to feed their families and to put food on the table. And they came up with several different ways. And what is interesting is that these very things that they came up with as kind of um, forms of self-reliance and survival strategies are now the very things that are attracting outsiders because they're seen as cool and democratic and diverse and you know authentic and simple and they appeal to like progressive values kind of like a, a market or a community garden so to speak yeah yeah i mean that's uh that's definitely some of the solutions right there's been uh, small co-ops or community gardens or uh, even street vending. You know, street vending, street vendors play a really important role in many communities. And what's interesting is that on the one hand, they're being sort of criminalized and penalized for not always having permits and operating under the law and things like that. And at the same time, we now have community organizations that are creating you know, spaces for food festivals and food fair and things like that, where they are vendors. And so there's this kind of two sort of, there's like two routes, this like a, a really segregated system where we have the old street vendors who are still struggling. And then you have these new spaces that attract newcomers and outsiders that kind of look like the old ones, but with new investors and new, new chefs and you know, more aesthetically pleasing elements. In fact, aesthetics is, is a huge aspect of this transformation as well. Yeah, I, um, I remember watching just a YouTube channel uh, video on a food cart in New York City. And this woman um, made tamales every morning and um, she didn't have a permit to operate as a food stall, but was feeding, you know, hundreds of people per day. And then she bought a permit off of someone for relatively cheap and, you know, thought she was getting a good deal. And then that turned out to be fake. And then her business was policed and told, you know, you can't operate. Um, so thinking about like food trucks and who gets a permit, who doesn't, who's allowed to operate in certain areas. Um, you know, what are some of the reasons why you think food stalls or food carts don't have just like zero barrier to entry? Well, I mean, I understand that they are, you know, safety reasons. Uh, you want to make sure that they're not vending in like dangerous intersection or you want to make sure that the food is safe. And they, there's some valid reasons for regulating some of that. But I think that there's also um, sometimes you know, regulations are often put in place by and for people who benefit from them. And maybe brick and mortar businesses don't necessarily want to have street vendors 
around them. And in San Diego, a lot of the tension when it, about um, street vendors are often in more affluent areas. Um, but the consequence of these regulations affects people in lower income communities where street vending is really much more important to everyday life. This just, for example, in one of the neighborhoods, City Heights, I think something like 70% of residents purchase some food through informal vendors. Um, so it really plays a significant role in just even improving access to food. And so when we're thinking in a very traditional way um, about food deserts and you know, improving access to food, we might say, oh, we need to bring a supermarket. We need to find a, you know, a way to bring them to the neighborhood, maybe tax breaks, maybe incentives, maybe we'll lease the land at a low cost. So we'll figure out something politically to attract a big supermarket. While in reality, maybe working with residents, finding out what they want, what they need, what would be good for the community would actually be much more effective if the goal is really to address food insecurity. Um, but we don't always see that. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. And then walk us through your methodology. So I use a lot of different methods. So I would describe it as mixed methods. Um, I definitely uh, use a lot of ethnography. So I spend a lot of time working with different organizations, participating in different events and uh, observing, um, doing interviews of different stakeholders, but also a lot of interviews um, of um, residents uh, who were consumers at different establishments, um, uh, business owners, um, owners of ethnic um, restaurants and ethnic uh, food stores, and then uh, restaurant workers. Uh, so I did a lot of interviews and then I combined that with uh, mapping and analysis of uh, more quantitative data from like the census. Um, and so, for example, I have a number of maps of uh, gentrification and I look at uh, the division of labor and the food uh, service industry and, you know, the ethnicity and the race of the different workers and median earnings and all these kinds of things, whether they have um, um, health benefits um, and all these kinds of things that are available in the census. And then another source of information on which I rely quite heavily is the media. So I, I do a lot of work uh, looking at social media, especially Yelp. Um, I found this fascinating to look at Yelp reviews of different restaurants. I think they reveal so much information about the way people perceive um, ethnic food and perceive also neighborhoods where these restaurants are located. Um, and then comparing that to you know, reviews from the food media. Um, that I, so I use that a lot. And then tell us about some of the broader findings. I know you can't get into all the detail on the podcast. Yeah, well, so I talked a little bit already about um, food apartheid, and that's kind of the starting point in a way, is that these businesses are operating under these conditions. Um, another um, finding, and it's probably not extremely surprising, but it's that the work involved in creating this urban food economy and creating this exciting foodscape is extremely precarious. Um, and so most of the people who work in the food industry are actually 
food insecure, their work is devalued. And in fact, what is actually kind of interesting to me is that their work is sort of absent or erased from all these narratives about ethnic food. So again, it goes back to this idea of we want ethnic food without immigrants or without people, people of color. Um, and so one of the things that I was trying to do in the book is, you know, there's been a lot of interest in food in the last 10, 15 years, and many people are interested in um, sustainability question and health question. They want to know more about their food. They want to know where their food comes from, what's in it. But they don't always ask who prepared it and what is the story behind a certain ethnic dish. And I kind of wanted to push this questioning of food into this direction and thinking a little bit more about the labor involved in it and the people behind it. Um, and so as a geographer who's interested in urban geographies and urban spaces, a lot of my questions also had to do with what does it do, not just to the workers and the people involved, but to the spaces where these types of food are being marketed and consumed. Um, and so I think ultimately the biggest finding has to do with uh, gentrification and the sort of impact of this on gentrification and sort of documenting how it's displacing um, people in, in different ways and kind of rethinking um, work around gentrification, um, broadening the thinking about gentrification. That's not just about housing, but it's also about ways of lives and spaces of everyday life. Interesting. Yeah, the sort of gastro development, and it's not just housing, but why do people want to live there in the first place? And it's sort of this branding, and it's becoming cooler in a way. And this sort of whitewash ethnic foodscape is a uh, what's being promoted for people to live there. Right, right. And I know when you think about urban development, of course, there's the material aspect of it, right? There's the capital investment and building new, uh, new housing, new condos, uh, renovating spaces. And that's all like the physical material um, uh, investment. But there's also a discursive investment, right? This, this a changing narrative about space. And that's what food allows us to look into is to look at how these places are changing and how people then perceive them as places where they might wanna go live, where they might consider renting an apartment because it's a little bit more affordable, but it's still really cool and fun and trendy. Um, and so that's part of that narrative that contributes to uh, gentrification until people are priced out of the neighborhood and then it's no longer uh, suitable to live in that neighborhood at that low cost, right? Right, and that's also something that obviously I discuss in the book is this, the different ways the displacement occurs. I think a lot of the early uh, gentrification literature really focused on kind of direct displacement that is people being evicted from uh, where they live because they can't afford to pay rent anymore. They stop paying and at some point they get kicked out. But I think there's other ways that displacement work. And one of the ways is through this sort of erosion of everyday life where people can no longer live the way they used to living. They don't recognize, this, they don't recognize the places around them. Uh, the store where they used to shop for food are suddenly 
more expensive because they get a new owner and they get a facelift and they sell different products and they have organic products and this and that. And um, they just can afford to live there. So it's a combination of economic factors and affordability, but it's also a combination of kind of social and cultural and even emotional um, reaction to what is happening to their neighborhood. And it becomes a neighborhood where they don't belong anymore. Yeah, and you quoted um, Leslie Kern on the sort of slow violence that I think that falls into, right? Yes. Could you tell us a little bit more about this concept? Yes. Um, so Leslie Kern's work was very influential to me in terms of thinking about the different forms of displacement that I've been talking about. And I really like this idea of uh, displacement as a form of slow violence that happens not just again through just eviction, which is really pretty direct violence in some ways, but in more slow ways that almost get kind of embodied, right? That's something that as a, a longtime resident, when you walk in the street and you see different people, you see maybe, I don't know, a new coffee shop where coffee now costs $6, uh, maybe across the street, uh, um, wine bar, and then another taco place that presumably might be, you know, serving people of you own ethnic group, but in reality, the tacos are so expensive and the ingredients are so unusual that you really don't recognize them. And I guess that's where the $16 taco comes from. And by the way, that's an actual taco. Uh, that's not an invented title. So, uh, but so that's a form of slow violence to people, you know, to, when they see that. And in fact, when people talk to me about the $16 taco, they were furious. Like they were really upset that this was happening in the neighborhood. And mm -hmm. so I think that's what that slow violence refers to. Yeah, like they feel it so deeply. Mm -hmm. um, and it might even be, you know, conscious or unconscious, and, and it sort of whittles its way in right. there in this slow right. manner. Yeah. And then what are some opportunities for future research on this topic? Well, I think there's a lot. Uh, <laughs> there always is. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be busy. I'm yeah. going to be very busy. Uh, I think um, from my perspective, I think that there's a lot more that can be done on um, labor involved in the kind of building the exciting, trendy foodscape. Um, there's, of course, labor in the back of the house, but there's labor in front of the house. And a lot of this labor is emotional and performative. We want waiters, for example, to look a certain way, to act a certain way. And I'm really interested in this form of emotional labor. So that's something that I would like to spend a little bit more time into. I, of course, would like to also spend more time thinking about solutions and what we can do to make sure that people keep ownership and um, own the equity that they put into their own foodscape and how we can preserve that, how we can help people reclaim the neighborhood and not necessarily reclaim the old neighborhood that had problems, but reclaim the old neighborhood and improve it without losing it. Uh, how do we do that? Um, I don't have answers to all of these questions. I have some ideas, but that's really something that I think more work could be done on. And that includes working with people who are actually doing this, you know, trying to figure out what is working, what's not working, what's successful. 
Um, so these are different areas where definitely more work um, is needed. Right. Yeah, even, um, you know, the sort of labor conversations that are happening because of the pandemic mm -hmm. and, um, you know, huge swaths of the population leaving the food industry, but then a lot of people are bound to the food industry for their livelihood and, you know, this insecure work. Everyone's sort of agreed now that it's terrible work, but now it's become even more segregated. Right, right. And the pandemic mm -hmm. really like highlighted for me so many of these inequalities that exist within our food system. And, you know, you saw, for example, uh, food delivery people, right? Delivering mm -hmm. food throughout the pandemic, putting themselves at great risks. And yes. in fact, having much higher rates of, um, you know, COVID infection, uh, but they needed to do that. They didn't have a safety net. So people needed to continue working. And now a lot of people are questioning that, but some people can afford to quit. And some right. people can't. And so we still mm -hmm. have a broken system, but at least we, we're talking about it a lot more than we used to. And a lot of people are raising interesting questions and hopefully it will improve. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I wonder if, uh, if it wasn't for the pandemic, would we be having these conversations and sparking all of these, you know, experiences that are actually close to people's lives now? You know, mm -hmm. it. Uh, we get to see it in the news, like you said, um, just reviewing what news articles are about this. And there's probably way more on the food industry and labor now than there ever was. Sure. Um, but, it, you know, these bad things needed to happen in order for uh, it to be outlined. So that's also a negative. But, um, you know, I think doing more research, uh, I am excited to see all of that future research on it. Um, yeah. And then what are some opportunities for using this research and practice? So, you know, you spoke already about ownership and labor. Um, what are some of the ways that that cities or uh, planners or even lay people can resist this uh, displacement or gentrification? Well, I think a lot of that can be brought together through this idea of food sovereignty which is an idea that often comes from the global south, but I think it's very valid in uh, global north and United States urban context as well, which really emphasize the need for people to um, control their food system. And that includes what and how food is produced and for whom. And I think in trying to uphold this notion of food sovereignty, we have to fight against food apartheid and we can do that by trying to support local initiatives like community garden, good food districts and things like that. But when we support that, we need to make sure that they run by and for people of color, that they're not just you know, outside volunteers and funders and groups that get involved and they come in a community and they're like, oh, this community is a food desert. We need to put a community garden and then they bring the community garden, they work in it a little bit and then they leave and there's no, buy-in from the community because nobody ever asked them what they wanted so I think we need to really pay attention to what the community wants we need to listen better um, we need to really ask them what they want and then find ways to support people and it needs to go beyond just the food system or alternative foods solutions like this it really needs to engage into um, affordable housing living wages and all of that. And 
I think a lot of that, again, it goes back to, I know I already talked about that, but it goes back to ownership. People have to be supported in the effort to improve the neighborhood and they should be given ownership of the, the equity that they've built into this, through this hard work. Um, and so I'm thinking that arrangements like community trust, community trusts um, maybe will become more common. What is a community trust? So a community trust is basically a system where there may be an outside funder, there may be money coming from the outside, but the money is instead of being invested into something that the organization um, owns and controls, or instead of giving individual loans to people, it's uh, or assistance to people it's put into a trust that is owned by the community and so you could have housing for example that is owned by a community organization and people are able to rent that but they also may be able to purchase some of that housing and build equity in it but then when they sell it they cannot speculate you know if this uh, they will have to sell it back to the trust so that the trust will then sell it back to somebody else. So they can still build some equity, but it's not an inordinate amount of equity because they're selling to a developer who wants to gentrify it. So it stays within the community and the equity gets built into the community and gets reinvested in the community instead of going to another big project um, somewhere else. Yeah, that's really interesting. Sort of thinking about the new, like, uh, highway renewal projects um, or taking down projects and um, mm -hmm. the sort of uh, lack of ownership that currently exists in all these places that were displaced to begin with or all the people. And then now, you know, there's new ownership, but it's often real estate developers that see a new highway or a highway being taken down and seize the opportunity and speculate on it. Whereas all the other people who left the neighborhood can't go back because it's going to be so expensive or the ones there might be displaced because they don't own it so right know. right mm. i mean it's a lot easier to displace renters of course yeah. than it is to displace owners so if we can build avenues to ownership that doesn't lead to speculation and then people moving out but ownership that leads to money you know being invested in the community um, and staying there to me that's that's really an important way to do that and that includes not just housing again that talking about businesses right one of the things that attracts a lot of people to these communities is these small ethnic restaurants and ethnic grocers and so on but they often get displaced because they're renters and so if we find a way to help and to support these small entrepreneurs and this small commercial sector then that would i think be very helpful um, yeah. for the community mm -hmm. again even like this rent to own uh, concept. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and right. then what about these sort of opportunity for telling better stories? Uh, you said this in the book, um, just sort of the counter narratives that are integral to the conversation. Yeah, I think, I mean, one of the important thing is, you know, one of the dynamic that's at play, this power dynamic is related to the fact that people who bring us ethnic food are erased from the story and we don't 
see the people behind the kitchen door. We don't see the immigrants and the refugees and the struggles that they've had and how that recipe represents something that's much more meaningful to them than it is to us who just enjoy the flavors, you know? And so we need to make these people visible and to let them tell these stories, not just package a cute little interesting charming story that will make us want to buy the food, but really have the real story with all its harsh reality. And so it has to be on their own term, not in a curated kind of marketing strategy. And hopefully that's something that I have done. Again, I'm not, um, I'm not one of the person that I describe in the book, but I've spoke with many people. I listened to them. I presented my findings. I, it was a very collaborative project. And so I've been trying to tell these stories, of course, with my own biases and uh, my own influence, uh, of course. But um, I think that's something that's really important is to, to hear, to listen to these stories, to tell these stories, to let people tell these stories as much as possible, and maybe give a platform for people to tell these stories. Right. Instead of hearing about things through a lens on a plane ride back from Europe. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And we've come full circle, haven't we? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Do you have any concluding thoughts before we uh, end the podcast episode? Well, I mean, really what I wanted to do in this book was to kind of uh, shed light on ethnic food and make us think a little bit more about what this uh, really mean and to shed light on the lives and the experience of the people behind it and to think about how race and ethnicity is lived and experienced by people in particular places and so um, yeah that's really one of the main thing I was trying to do in the book is to get us to think about food a little bit more deeply. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we really appreciate it. And you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. That's it for now. And thank you so much for listening. A big thanks to Pascal for joining us on this episode. Follow the link in the show notes to buy the book $16 Taco wherever books are sold. You can also follow her on Twitter at Josart Pascal. Be sure to share and subscribe to get updates on future episodes. Feel free to contact me on Twitter at DensityPod to keep the conversation going. A special thanks to Emily Huang of Emily H. Illustrations for the artwork on this podcast. You can check out more of her work and buy some of her art by following the link in the show notes. Another thanks to Reed Kai and Ryan Kinnear for the show music. See you next time on Dense City.